0: Please turn to Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 5 through 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Lord, we are commanded in your scriptures to have this mind, to set our minds on this. Lord, and we confess to you this morning that we come, and perhaps with so many different things in our minds besides the gospel. So would you help us to set our minds on Christ this morning? Help us, Lord, would you... Remove the distractions, We remove the thoughts that occupies our minds this morning, so that we may give attention to the work of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Elites in ancient Rome used to compete in what was known as the Chorus Honorum, or the Honors Race. It was a race to try to ascend higher and higher and higher on the social ladder, acquiring from themselves these prestigious positions, trying to find, sort of uh, attain for themselves these, these great positions, these seats of honor. And titles acquired along the way were publicly acknowledged and given by benefactors, or those who have a much more honorable position. Now even among the non-elites, there were also many who competed in this honors race such as those in in trade associations, or even amongst religious groups. In those days, it was your title that was the status symbol. Today, in our culture, those status symbols are very different, right? Status symbols today could be anything from the kind of car that you drive to fashion. Status symbols could be even the kind of water bottles that you drink out of, as interesting or as bizarre as that might sound be determined by your gym membership. This morning we come to a passage that is really well known for its Christological meaning. It's a passage that throughout church history became the focus of establishing certain things, or certain understandings about the person of Jesus Christ. However, if we focus so much on sort of the the doctrinal theology of the passage. And that is there, and that will be the topic of next week's sermon. But if we focus so much on that, we miss the point, I think, of the passage, which points us to something else. This passage is much more about status and church-centered implications of the status-yielding God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was also on his own sort of honors race. But while the rest of the world is on this honors race to ascend higher and higher and higher, Jesus is on this honors race that actually goes in the opposite direction. So then, let's talk about the passage. Just talk about Christ, the humility of Jesus Christ. So the passage says, tells us about Jesus. It tells us that He was in the form of God. And then later it tells us that he took the form of a servant and he was also found in human form. So already the passage is kind of illustrating to us the stark difference, or the stark differences in this one person of Jesus Christ, that he was in the form of God and at the same time the form of a servant or the form of a human being. And the form is really talking about his likeness, his appearance the passage is telling us that Jesus had the likeness of God. So to understand what the likeness of Christ is, then we need to understand what the likeness of God is, because that is the likeness that Jesus is being compared to. And so, a couple of passages that really highlights for us the likeness of God Himself is Psalm 104, verse one, which tells us, "Bless the Lord, O my soul; O Lord my God, you are very great; you are clothed with splendor and majesty." Isaiah 6, verse 1 is an incredible picture of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have one passage that tells us that the Lord, that God is clothed with splendor, with majesty. And then Isaiah tells us that the Lord is seated high on a throne, so high, in fact, that you would break your neck and to stare up to see the throne of God. And it tells us that the train of his robe filled the temple, displaying his majesty and his dignity, his royalty. Not only that, but there were angels surrounding the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so this is the picture that we have concerning the likeness of God. And so then what do these passages tell us about the likeness of Christ? That Jesus, well, Christ is in the same likeness of God. It's not to be confused with the likeness that we read in Genesis, we read of the creation of man that tells us, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In that particular passage, man is created with the likeness of God in the sense that they are called to exercise dominion and rule and govern the entire world. So much more concerned about function, but here, this passage is speaking about form appearance as telling us that jesus is rolled in the same splendor and the same majesty of god as if you took if you took say caesar you took just somebody who wasn't caesar take a regular person right you could be able to tell who is caesar and who isn't by Perhaps the clothes, the robes that Caesar is wearing, perhaps by the crown that Caesar is wearing that the other person would not be wearing. Easily distinguishable. So, Jesus, well, the passage is telling us that Jesus is distinguishable from the rest of man because he's clothed in splendor and majesty, the same divinity that God himself wears. So, if you put Jesus Christ beside any human being, there would have been a difference of epic or cosmic proportions. The passage is pointing us to the royalty of the divine Son of Man who has sovereign rule. And so by his, just his outward attire, just by his outward appearance, it would have been absolutely clear that this person is like no other. In Matthew 17, so in the Gospels, we actually have a small picture of this splendor and divinity of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 17, verse 1, it tells us that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So there's a a picture of Jesus Christ clothed with the splendor and majesty that is his. Not because he is just simply pretending to be God and wearing the clothes of God, but because he is God. He is the Lord. So Even though Jesus is, in fact, in the form of God and also in the form of a human being, it also tells us in the passage, but he emptied himself. In ancient times, kings were considered to be godlike. So, in reading this this passage, the original hearers of this passage would have immediately understood that Paul is likening Christ to a king. But this king emptied himself. Now, what does he mean by emptied himself? That this king did not exploit his status or his prestige or his dignity, he didn't use it for his own purposes. I think of like, networking events, like when you have like, young professionals go to a particular event for networking, when they try to get to know other young professionals, perhaps to maybe they're a young entrepreneur and they're trying to find the right persons to maybe help promote whatever it is their product is, or maybe you're trying to get to know the right person to get your foot into the door to the company that you want to work at. And so there's kind of this, this mutual exchange of information for one's own purposes, and that's fine. But what the ultimate purpose is, you're looking out for things that will better your current position. Jesus, on the other hand, tells us, tells us that Jesus emptied himself. That he didn't use his royalty, he didn't use his status, he didn't use his divinity in order to fulfill his own purposes. But instead of ascending, he descends. The NIV says, Jesus made himself as nothing. The idea here is that Jesus is lowering his rank. It doesn't say anything, it doesn't speak to Jesus lowering his divinity or giving up any of his power in order to become human. It's actually a heresy. Jesus is lowering his own rank, which is unthinkable. I mean, imagine, just picture a CEO of a top million-dollar company, the guy who is at the very top of the hierarchy, coming down the ladder to become, say, an intern. Right? It's unthinkable. You would never expect that. And yet that's what Jesus is doing. He's lowering his own rank. He didn't see his status as something that he would hold on to himself or use it for his own purposes. He didn't use it to try to climb up, perhaps maybe even be higher than God himself, right? something that the devil attempted to do. But instead of climbing up, he climbed down. And we're told the manner by which he emptied himself, the passage says that he emptied himself How? By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus took the form of a servant. He removed his royal robes and instead put on the rags of a servant. It's like some of you are familiar with that show, the undercover boss, when you have somebody's a top position. In most cases, it's kind of dealing with uh, like a, a customer service kind of company, like a restaurant, and that person dresses himself up to become sort of a, like a, a regular employee working in the trenches to see the normal operations in one of their branches, to see if employees are being treated fairly, to see if there's good or excellent customer service. It's the kind of step that Jesus takes although he's not pretending to be a servant, but he actually becomes a servant. Not professionally, not by trade, but he takes on the posture of a servant. He becomes a servant of servants. He becomes a servant of sinners. He took the form, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The one who had the form of God now also has the form of man. And it's in the form of man that God, the Son, veils his divinity and his royalty, his dignity and his status behind this human flesh. And if you ever wonder what Jesus must have looked like, what was his appearance like as a human being, you don't need to wonder because Isaiah, thousands of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah Would tell us what Jesus actually looked like. Isaiah 53, verse 1 tells us, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he that is Jesus grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, Isaiah is telling us that when you look at Jesus, he doesn't have the appearance that you would find on the cover of a GQ magazine. He wouldn't be one that Hollywood would try to recruit and put in a major production because of his handsome appearance. I don't think that necessarily means that Isaiah is saying that he was an ugly individual. I mean, we have very superficial ways of defining what is beauty and what is ugly. But what telling us is that when you look at Jesus, when you look at him, when you see his appearance, you're not going to say, this is a king, or this is the son of God, or this is the Messiah. It's not like... It's not like King Saul. Remember if you read the Old Testament, King Saul, when people wanted a king, they looked at Saul like, oh yeah, this is a king. This man looks like a king. But when you look at Jesus, you wouldn't have that reaction. He doesn't look like a king, much less like the Son of God. And this is is the kind of honors race that Jesus is running. Instead of climbing up, he climbs down. We've been absolutely foolish to the Romans, and it's absolutely foolish to the world today for sure. But that descent from glory just continues. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is Jesus, robed in the dignity, the status of God himself because he is God. The one who commands respect and obedience is now in a position of obedience. And back then, obedience carries such a social stigma because of the close connections to slavery. So people would often avoid using the word obedience because they were afraid of offending somebody. But here in the passage, unashamedly, it tells us that Jesus became obedient. Even to the point of death. And not just to the point of death, but even death on a cross. What we have here is this picture of this dramatic descent of Christ. It's telling us about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Humiliation carries the idea that a particular public action decreases one's social capital. So the point is that Jesus, the Son of God, one dressed in royalty and dignity and majesty, took on the posture of a servant, dressed himself as a human being, came down that ladder and experienced the climatic hell of public humiliation, and that is crucifixion, a death worthy or considered worthy for the most heinous of criminals and a punishment fit for a slave. So are you kind of getting the picture of this descent that Jesus imparts on, this race? That goes in this opposite direction of what you and I might normally pursue. And Jesus, instead of staying up there, came down and didn't even come and lived as a king, didn't even come down here and to amass great status for himself or great wealth for himself and make a name for himself but instead he came to serve and to die in a humiliating way on a cross to save sinners. And the question is, why? Why would he do this? Why did he do this? Again, the prophet Isaiah is helpful. Isaiah 53 says, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus experienced the most humiliating and agonizing death so that you and I might be spared of the judgment of God. Jesus endured such humiliation, such an agonizing death, so that you and I might be spared the humiliation and the dishonor of experiencing the judgment and condemnation of God. So that instead of being dishonored, we actually might be honored by God. So that we may receive eternal life with God, so that we may be forgiven of our sins, that so we may be cleansed, healed of our sins. That is why Jesus did it. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, a book I would highly commend to you, writes, the incarnation, speaking of Jesus coming into the world, his life, the incarnation was, for the Son of God, a humiliation beyond compare. The, th- the, the Son who thirsted was the same who made water. The Son who was too tired to carry his cross was the same who upholds the entire world the son whose side was pierced was the same who gave breath and life to the one who did it the incarnation of the son of god in this world of sin and misery was truly an act of humiliation it began at his birth and continued to his death and burial Humiliation. And it was for your sake. And it was for my sake. So that we might be saved. Jesus Christ died for you. You understand the depths of what Jesus did to purchase your salvation. Do you understand the gravity of what Jesus has done? Do you understand just the heights from where he came from and just how low he had to come in order to spare you from the judgment of God? That is the good news of the gospel. A message which is the power of God, and yet at the same time considered to be utterly foolish because while the world will run in, one, in a certain direction, gain status and become much more honorable, Jesus ran in the opposite direction. 1 Corinthians one eighteen speaks of the, the foolishness of the cross. I love it. In 1 Corinthians one eighteen: for the word of the cross is folly to who? if the gospel of Jesus Christ is considered to be utterly foolish to the rest of the world, yet it is the power of God, then I will gladly preach that foolish message for the rest of my life because no other message is going to save anybody. Only the gospel is going to save. And so this was the honors race that Jesus embarked upon. Let's say, such a low descent, but it also gives way to a great uh, ascent. The passage concludes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It is of great honor to be publicly honored by somebody whose honor is greater than yours. It would have been unthinkable for somebody of great honor to give honor to a servant. Here is Christ, the servant of servants, the one who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here he is, honored by the one whose honor is unsurpassable. And I don't think the idea is that he is rewarded. Christ earned it. But the idea here is vindication. That Jesus was declared to be right. That Jesus' work on the cross, that his entire work was considered to be more than satisfactory by God the Father that God was pleased with the Father, and so God raised him from the dead, vindicating Jesus, showing to the world that this was right. So we're thankful, right? we praise the Lord, that Jesus' race did not end in humiliation. It didn't end with this disfigured face, and a bloody brow, and his hanging on the cross, and his dying, being buried in the tomb. No, it didn't end there. But his race ended with his being risen from the grave and exalted to the right hand of God. He's given a name. One way to think about that is when we say you have made a name for yourself, when somebody's made a name for themselves. The idea is public recognition. He's given a name above every name, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that name. And it's not that Jesus is ascending or has ascended to a higher position than he's ever had before, but the idea is that he now has a new reputation. Before, he was reigning as the Son of God, as God himself, but through his work on the cross, he now reigns as the God man. He now reigns as God incarnate. He now reigns as Savior. And with that comes a new reputation the effective universal dominion that comes with that reputation. The passage concludes that it is all to the glory of God. All for the worship, the praise, the honor, the splendor, the worth of God the Father. The work of Christ shows the magnificent worth of God the Father. All glory be to God. Now, if you are following in, if you happen to be following along in the bulletin notes that are in the inserts, the very last one, so point two, point two C says, set your mind on humility, scratch that. Instead, set your mind on the gospel. Humility is important. I mean, we're commanded to have this mind among ourselves. And it's referring back to what, it's said, what was said before. In the past couple of weeks, we've talked about these exhortations, these imperatives, or these commands in the scriptures that's telling us to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. We've talked about how important it is for us to be of one mind, how important it is for us to walk in unity, to maintain unity, to be eager in, uh, to maintain that unity. That's all incredibly important. And there are other imperatives that come as we continue through the letter of Paul to the Philippians. But none of it really matters unless it's all grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without the gospel, all we're doing is just being legalistic. Without the gospel, all we're doing is just being pragmatic. we're not looking to be pragmatic for pragmatic's sake. We're not looking to be united just for being united. But we're looking to do these things because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That passage there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is the most important part in the entire letter. I mean, this is, what, this is the glue that, that holds everything else together. If you lose that, if you lose the gospel, you lose everything else. Nothing else really matters. The most important thing about you is the gospel. The most important thing that has ever happened to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else trumps that. There's no moving past that. There's not going to be another message that's greater than the gospel. The gospel is it. And so, set your mind on the gospel. Think about the gospel. When was the last time you just spent some time just thinking about the gospel? The gospel. We spent the last, I don't know how long I've been up here now, 30 minutes, 35, I have no idea, but we spend however many minutes thinking about the gospel. That's what this passage is about. The passage is giving us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what our lives are all about. Whatever distractions might be in your mind today, and they might be, they might be important things. No, but my job, essentially, is to be an audible reminder week after week of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we always need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you thought about even just your own salvation, I was reading something earlier this week, and I couldn't help... But think about the gospel. I couldn't help but just be, feel overwhelmed that I know Jesus. I just talked to somebody yesterday that had something wonderful happen to their life, and I couldn't help but think about the gospel. It's just how, how good God has been to this person. It's not about prosperity. Believe me, I'm not a, uh, and I think you know me well enough, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. But man, God is really good. God is good to his people. Have you ever just sat and reflected on your gospel? Where would you be right now if you did not know Jesus? What would your life look like if you did not know Jesus? God is so, so, so good. The gospel is so so good so if you have been distracted by so many things happen in your life you need the gospel been struggling with sin in your life you need the gospel having trouble being patient you need the gospel if you're enduring a trial in your life right now if you're suffering you need the gospel the gospel is the answer. The gospel is always the answer. It's a message that we never should never get tired of, or ever get bored with. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, but you just heard of the gospel this morning. Trust in the gospel believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ turn your life to the lord confess your sins to god and he will save you he will forgive you of your sins give you eternal life go to him i'd be more than happy to talk with you to know what the, to help you understand what that looks like even just think about it. Think about the message you've heard this morning. As I said before, even for us Christians, right, that's still that's an exhortation for us as well. Make an effort to set our minds on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor tells us to have the mind of Christ and in Jesus we see this example of humility. Follow that example, right? That's what we're called to do. But if you really want to have the mind of Christ, then set your mind on the gospel because the mind of Christ was filled with the very gospel. So My prayer and hope is that you would be encouraged, that you would be given maybe more hope than you had when you first came in. You would have even just a little bit more joy at the thought of your salvation than you had before you came in this morning. Because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to this world, took on a human form, lived a sinless life, was humiliated beyond anything anybody has ever experienced in all of human history, died on the cross and rose again so that you might be saved. So that one day you will be honored and glorified when you see Jesus Christ face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that that you might help us to have a greater understanding of the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. Lord, and may we also be unashamed to say that Christ died for me. It is a wonderful message, and it is such a personal message. May we embrace that message with our whole hearts. May we never tire of hearing the gospel. May we never tire of thinking about the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us and all that you continue to do to this day. Would you help our minds to be so occupied with the gospel? Would you help us to live out the gospel? May we look to the gospel, Lord, in just our greatest times of need. Not even just in our times of need, but every single day, Lord, we need the gospel. Would you help us to set our minds to it? Because we so desperately need it. It is the power of God for those who are currently being saved. We pray that you would save us. Continue, Lord, to help us as we pursue you, as we look to the kingdom of heaven by continually grounding ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.